Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. You have to laugh, really. You're having back-to-back parties in checkers to thank your loyal staff over the last 40, 40 days. She probably didn't even have time to learn their names, or maybe Tories don't bother with the names of the domestic staff. Back-to-back parties suggest she's got a lot of friends, but it didn't feel like that during the catastrophic, calamitous, shortest in all British history tenure as Prime Minister. In Liz We Trust, do you remember those mugs? They're now going cheap, I bet, in a remainder store. You couldn't make it up. It's obvious, or should have been, I certainly warned everybody long and loudly enough that this woman was completely out of her depth as Prime Minister at any time, never mind a time as tumultuous as this, where we face existential challenges on the economic, on the political, and who knows, according to the Russian Defence Minister in the last hour, maybe even on the military front. The truth is, we need a Churchill 1940. We got Liz Truss instead, who would have been a tea lady in Downing Street at the time at best. And now we've got Mr Sunak from Accounts and Mr Johnson vying for the premiership. We'll be talking to Professor Sir John Curtis, the Prince of Cephologists, the Prince of Pundits and Pollsters in the first part of the show to get the runners, riders and latest prices and to analyse what it all might mean for us. But here's my tuppence worth. If Boris Johnson does have 100 nominees, then he is a shoe-in as the returning Prime Minister, making him a comeback king uh, comparable to Muhammad Ali's return in the rumble in the jungle against George Foreman in Zaire all those decades ago. No one could come back as Prime Minister after the humiliating exit that he made other than Boris Johnson. Now, for the avoidance of doubt, and I have to keep doing this because so many people don't listen to what I'm saying properly. I think that Boris Johnson is a liar, a cad, a mountbank. He is, he has lived now a long life as an imposter, as a liar, as a cheater, as a deceiver, on every level, deceiving his families, deceiving his employers, deceiving his party members and all the rest. But he will win 
the Tory leadership for this reason. He, despite all the monkeys he has on his back, despite all the skeletons in his various cupboards, in his various residences that he has maintained, though probably not paid the rent on, throughout his long and public career, despite all the crosses he has to bear, he has what the French call je ne sais quoi. I don't know what. It's a quality. And in politics, it is vital. John Major didn't have it, which is why he eventually crashed out of power. Margaret Thatcher did have it. Tony Blair did have it. Gordon Brown didn't have it. It's something you cannot learn. You either have it or you don't. Call it stardust. Call it charisma. Call it a popular touch. Call it whatever you like. Boris has got it. And Mr. Sunak from accounts, despite having hundreds of millions of pounds in his pocket and billions in the purse of his wife, simply doesn't have it. That's the long and the short of it. Why does that matter? It matters because members of parliament, like the man who is to be hanged in the morning, have their mind concentrated wonderfully by the possibility that they might be ex-members of parliament. I sat in the British parliament for nearly 30 years. There is nothing as ex as an ex-member of parliament. Trust me, it's good work, it's clean, there's no heavy lifting, the carpets are thick, the upholstery mellow, the catering wonderful at 1970s prices, it's steady work for five years on pretty decent money with a more than decent pension. No member of parliament wants to leave it. That's why they stay in the parties they're in, even though they increasingly hate the parties that they're in because they know that outside that party they would be hard pushed to be elected. Very few people can be elected on their own name, on their own standing. I'm one of the very few who's done so not once but twice. But there are very few of us who can do it, put their name on a ballot paper, sometimes in a place, my own case, in two entirely new places in which I'd scarcely set foot three weeks before, but was in the case of uh, Bradford West elected in a landslide. There are not many who can do that and not many willing to try. So for the members of parliament, what counts is who will keep their seat. That's why Boris Johnson has now passed 100 nominations. And having now got himself on the ballot, he will win by a landslide. Not just for the aforementioned reasons, but because, as I keep saying, most Tory party members think that we should still be ruling India, not that an Indian from accounts should be ruling us. Boris Johnson, blonde hair, blue-eyed, full of idiomatic English that ironically is more often spoken in India now than it is in England, he is the man the Tory party will pick because the Tory members know that the opinion poll in the Daily Mail 
an exhaustive one, a very large one, on which I'll speak to Professor Sir John in a minute, showed that under Sunak, the Tories lose by a staggering 26 percentage points. Under Boris Johnson, now they lose by just 10 percentage points. The difference between an absolutely annihilating landslide and being in a fighting position between now and the general election in order to recover that lost ground. There's a third reason, or is it fourth? The fourth reason is this. The Tories could not morally, as Zach Goldsmith, Lord Goldsmith, just pointed out on Twitter minutes ago before I came on the air, the Tories cannot morally and therefore politically sustain a case for a third new prime minister, all based on a mandate won by a prime minister that they sacked. In other words, a new prime minister, Mr. Sunak from accounts, would have to call an early general election. Boris Johnson returning to the job does not so require a general election because he already has a mandate. He won it with a big majority, 80 parliamentary constituencies, including seats never won by the Conservatives before in a hundred years and unlikely ever to be won by any Conservative other than Boris Johnson in the future. So, notwithstanding my caveats about the beastliness of Mr. Johnson, he is the obvious candidate for Prime Minister, and I believe that next week he will complete that comeback, like Muhammad Ali knocking out George Foreman. In the latter case, I experienced epiphany. In this case, I will simply, merely and quickly return to remorseless, unremitting attack on the bounder, the cad, the mountbank, Boris Johnson. I'm just telling you what I think is going to happen. Of course, I could be wrong. Boris could be lying, though it wouldn't be like him, would it? He might not have a hundred MPs, but all of his closest dates in the last hour or so are saying that he does. And if he doesn't, it's not just him that will never be able to show his face in politics again. It's his allies that have very publicly supported him. People like Jacob Rees-Mogg and others who are openly stating that there is going to be a contest. He met in a kind of Tory granita moment. I don't know what would be the, the Tory equivalent of the uh, granita. The, the harvester, perhaps, out in the country, wearing brown shoes and corduroys. That might be the way the Tories do it, at least those in that elite class that both Sunak and Johnson belong to. So in their harvester moment, they met for three hours last night. They failed to reach agreement. That could only be because Sunak thought that Johnson couldn't get 100 nominations. Because now that he's failed to do the deal, Sunak is bound for California. There's absolutely no future for Rishi Sunak 
in British politics if having failed to do a deal with Boris and then lost heavily in any ballot, it's curtains for Sunak or new curtains in Malibu rather than the ones he was currently imagining in number 10 Downing Street. Jeremy Hunt will continue as Chancellor of the Exchequer so as not to frighten the horses and the markets. Penny Mordaunt, if she does a last-minute deal with Boris, would be a passable foreign secretary. And after all, we haven't had very high standards in that post in recent times. Go back and look at who they were. Now, viewing politics in Beijing by comparison looks serene absolutely stable, and these two things cannot be separated from China's burgeoning political and economic success. I know you don't want to hear that, as President Francis Urquhart put it, sotto voce, looking off camera, democracy, it's so overrated. Democracy has given us Joe Biden and Liz Truss. The lack of democracy in China is, of course, a relative matter. In Britain and in the United States, you can change the party, but you cannot change the policies. If a leader of a major party emerges who doesn't accept the pro-imperialist neoliberal economics that are the prevailing orthodoxy in the Western democracies, they will be destroyed ruthlessly, if necessarily with extreme prejudice, as Jeremy Corbyn might be actually relieved he never had to find out. You cannot change the policies in Western countries, but that you can change the policies in China is self-evident. China's policies are simply incomparable to those that went before. Xi Jinping is presiding over a China that is something of a political and economic miracle. It is neither wholly socialist nor wholly capitalist. It is something written in Chinese characteristics. It cannot be compared to anywhere else. And his paramountcy as the political leader has just been confirmed. In the last couple of hours, he is about to embark on a third term, unprecedented third term as China's leader. Of course, most Western media outlets, when they cannot ignore what's happening in China, lie about it instead. It's only, after all, about three weeks ago that the entire social media blogosphere, the entire mass media in the West was telling you that there was a military coup taking place in Beijing. They showed pictures of God knows what it was supposed to be, a column of military vehicles, they said, headed for Beijing, even though any cursory reading of the street signs showed that they were heading away from Beijing. They showed you pictures of the military officer who was to be the new president of China.
Today, it is who Jintao being dragged out of the Congress Hall where he was sitting right next to the leader of China. And this was portrayed as the old fellow being dragged out when in fact the man is suffering, just like Joe Biden, from exactly the condition that Joe Biden is suffering from. Premature senility, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, call it what you will, Hu Jintao was helped into the Congress Hall and placed in his seat by exactly the same stewards who then came on to lead him off the stage because the old fellow can't make it on his own. Far as I know, he doesn't have the same toilet troubles as Joe Biden, and the Chinese don't allow their retired leaders to shake hands with empty space or caress the hair of little schoolgirls on camera. The Chinese have rather more dignity than that. So the Melbourne Age, the New York Times, you're talking through your hat, if not your ass. You are an idiot, if not a liar, when you claim that this was some coup taking place. Because a man in his 80s was assisted from the podium by the same stewards that assisted him into it. Now, only time for a very brief mention about the war. It's all going very badly. And as General Winter approaches, it seems ready to get much worse. The Shoigu, the Russian defense minister, just said in the last couple of hours that the situation is heading for uncontrollable escalation. He means the American armed forces moving up to the Ukrainian border in Romania. It's only the 51st Airborne Division, an outfit with a checkered military past, and there's only 4,500 of them. But nonetheless, it's the closest hostile American forces have come to Russian forces at any time since the Second World War. That's important. Make a note of it, that I spoke to you of it this day. He means also that the Russian reinforcements are now almost in place. Within 10 days, Russia will have almost doubled their military strength in the liberated parts of the Ukraine, as they call them, occupied parts of Ukraine, as they're known in Kiev and in Western capitals. More than double the military and more than double the firepower. So the chances of any of the territory taken by Russia being reoccupied by Ukrainian forces is close to zero. But more important, perhaps than that, is that the political situation in the European countries that have declared economic war on Russia is sliding from bad to worse. The draggy centrist government in Italy has gone, replaced by a populist government of the right with the new Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni now in place. 
President Macron has already lost his majority and mass demonstrations are beginning to break out all over France and for that matter all over Germany. But perhaps as significant as any is the uprising taking place in Moldova right now at Chisnau Airport where mass demonstrations, perhaps the beginning of an insurrection, is threatening to topple the pro-NATO, pro-EU president of Moldova, which is a breakaway from Romania and which has itself lost territory called Transnistria as a breakaway from it. The majority of the people in Transnistria are overwhelmingly 90% or more Russian people. And the political sympathies with at least half of the people in Moldova lie with Moscow rather than with Brussels, with NATO and the EU. So we may be beginning to see tectonic plates moving in places you perhaps have not studied as closely as you might now need to. We've got a poll running at thousands of people. I think last week's poll was the biggest we have ever had. I think something like 20,000 people voted in the poll last week. Let's see how we do this week. Who will be Britain's next Prime Minister? A. Boris Johnson. B. Rishi Sunak. Quite close, actually, on my platforms, but that was before my monologue. Boris Johnson, 54%. Rishi Sunak, 46% on Twitter. On YouTube, please subscribe to my YouTube channel. 220,000 have, but it really should be much more. Half of you are watching on YouTube, but not subscribing. Please do it. On YouTube, yes, uh, sorry, Boris Johnson, 47%. Rishi Sunak, 53%. And on the Telegram channel, ha, Boris Johnson, 50%. Rishi Sunak. 50%. Well, let's talk to the experts, shall we? Professor Sir John Curtis is on the line. Professor, thanks uh, very much uh, indeed for joining us. Um, the, the opinion polls uh, seem very clear that uh, if Boris Johnson returns, the Tories will get wiped out less badly than they will if they uh, put in either Penny Mordaunt or Rishi Sunak. What say you? Well, actually, the polls aren't consistent, George. There are a couple of polls that point somewhat in that direction, but I can find you two or three others that basically say there isn't much difference between Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak in terms of their ability to reduce the Labour lead. None of these polls, by the way, suggest that, they, that, uh, that simply changing the leader would uh, mean that the Tories were doing well enough to be able to re retain power. So to that extent, at least, the differences are somewhat academic. There is a clear difference in the character of the appeal of the two personalities. Boris Johnson essentially appeals to those who voted Conservative in 2019, but um, is received with a fair degree of antipathy amongst those who didn't, 
Rishi Sunak, in contrast, just doesn't quite enthusiasm, enthuse 2019 conservative voters as much. So some of them are just still saying, I don't know what I would do if Rishi Sunak were prime minister. Um, but he is somebody who is rather more popular amongst uh, those who didn't vote conservative in 2019. So one of the choices facing the conservatives is whether to go for somebody who might perhaps be able to revive uh, some of their core vote from 2019 or to go for somebody who has a wider appeal, but somebody who will have to do further work if he's going to get on board uh, some of the, well, not necessarily traditional, but at least 2019 Tory vote. Yeah, I mean, the 2019 Tory vote was a very significant one, uh, as you know, and indeed you told us. Uh, the Tories won seats in 2019 under Boris Johnson that they had never won before, and some that they hadn't won in half a century or more. Uh, so a strategy of trying to turn out the 2019 vote again, it's not a bad one, is it? No, it's a question. Uh, it's probably necessary, probably necessary. But the question is, is whether it's going to prove to be sufficient. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, the, the 2019 coalition was essentially forged through Boris Johnson being able to persuade, the, persuade those on the leave side of the argument. I guess they include you, you, you George. Uh, that he will be able to deliver Brexit. And around three quarters of the people who voted leave in 2016 voted for the Conservatives, whereas in contrast, the Remain vote was rather more uh, fragmented. But uh, the problem that the government faces now is not that people don't think it's go not going to deliver Brexit. It obviously has done. Though there are a few arguments at the edges, including uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol. The government's problem now is that, um, well, one, there are question marks still about Boris Johnson's probity and ethics, but two, fundamentally, and the reason why they're so far behind the polls, is that they have just presided over a fiscal and financial crash. And as has been true of all previous fiscal and financial crises in British uh, post-war history, uh, as a result, this has cost the government dear. So the question, therefore, is not, you know, is who of the uh, potential candidates can begin to persuade the public that they're able to turn the economy around, an economy that at the moment the, uh, the public blame the uh, government for crushing. And you know, they blame them so much that even amongst Leave voters at the moment, the Labour Party are ahead. Now, uh, it so happens that if you look at some of the detailed polling about who do you think will, uh, of the leaders, uh, the potential leaders might be able to achieve what, well, yeah. Boris Johnson is more likely than Rishi Sunak thought to be capable of reducing immigration. Um, though actually, while in office, it's not something that Boris Johnson was particularly successful at achieving. But ask people who's most likely to, re to uh, uh, improve the, the economy and reverse some of the damage, then Rishi Sunak uh, emerges ahead. So the, one of the crucial things also the Conservative Party has to think about is what is the character of the problem that it finds itself in? It's certainly not the same problem as in 2019, when Boris Johnson undoubtedly uh, salvaged the party's position, which at that stage was also pretty dire when he became a prime minister. It's very different circumstances. The problem it faces is very different. And therefore, you have to ask yourself which of the potential candidates perhaps is going to be more better able to mitigate the damage uh, that's been done over the last uh, four weeks to the Conservatives' reputation for running the economy. The, isn't Sunak uh, Gordon Brown uh, to Tony Blair? Isn't he John Major to Margaret Thatcher? Uh, doesn't he essentially lack uh, the kind of X factor 
that you require when you're in a bad situation like this? I mean, if the Tories were sailing along uh, with a commanding lead in uh, opinion polls, you might not need that X factor. You might be able to settle for uh, a John Major. But Sunak has all the charisma of a, of a wet lettuce, doesn't he? Yeah, there, there's in fact quite a remarkable similarity between Rishi Sunak and Gordon Brown in that you know, they're both ex-chancellors and both very much details people. Um, they're very good at mastering uh, their, their particular brief, particularly the financial brief. Um, you know, both of them in their different ways had developed expertise uh, in the area. Um, and I doubt one of the weaknesses about Rishi Sunak that was exposed in the leadership uh, contest with uh, Liz Truss was his inability to be able to summarize what he was about in the matter of a few words. There was no strap line. We knew what Liz Truss was in favor. It was it was ta uh, 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 tax cuts and no handouts, although in the end she was forced into the handouts in the form of the energy price guarantee. Um, but Rishi Sunak, you know, very much better than Liz Truss at mastering the detail, but very weak at uh, presenting a broad strategic vision. And I think undoubtedly that's one of the areas uh, where Mr. Sunak is at his weakest. Now, of course, it so happens that his opponent, Sakir Starner, is also not somebody with a great deal of charisma and so far has also not been somebody who's been very good at encapsulating in a relatively few number of words uh, what uh, kind of country he wants to create. So to that extent, at least, uh, Mr. Sunak's uh, weakness complements that of Sakir Starmer. And perhaps as a result of that, it may not be uh, quite so serious. But yeah, I, I think undoubtedly this is the principal question to be asked about uh, Mr. Sunak. Can he develop an ability to persuade people that he knows what kind of country he wants and can uh, give them some semblance that he's, uh, that he's on that particular journey? It is a tantalizing uh, the prospect that you temporarily dangle in front of me there. The boar fest of Rishi Sunak versus Sarkir Starmer. There must be room for someone like me to come through the middle there, John. But let's face it, if there is a ballot, if, because Boris Johnson might be lying for the first time in his life, he may not have a hundred nominators, but if there is a contest, uh, it, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? The party members go for Boris. Well, the honest answer to you, George, is that we don't know because no poll of Tory members has been conducted since Liz Truss resigned. We had three polls just before she resigned of Tory members, all of which showed that a minority of those people who had voted for Liz Truss were now changed, had now changed their minds and were saying that they would vote for Rishi Sunak if they, that contest were won again, also showed that a majority thought she should go. So certainly, uh, you know, as com in a competition with Liz Truss now, Mr. Sunak, you know, unsurprisingly, uh, would be the winner. Now, one of those polls did then go on to ask people, who is your preferred candidate? Well, yes, Boris Johnson was ahead. He had about 36%, uh, Rishi Sunak about 23%. But there you have to bear in mind that actually there was a whole litany of candidates presented to people. So a lot of people were saying, Ben Wallace, who was in standing, Penny Morton, who probably won't get on the ballot, uh, Jeremy Hunt, who, has, who is in standing. And of course, we don't know, therefore, how the many people who expressed preferences for other candidates would shape. And actually, when in that same poll, people were asked, well, 
uh, do you think that Mr. Johnson will make a good or a bad replacement? Do you think Mr. Sunak will make a good or a good or bad replacement? Well, Boris Johnson got 63% saying he'd make a good replacement, but Rishi Sunak got 60% saying he would make a good replacement. And what's intriguing about that is that pretty much everybody who voted for Rishi Sunak thought that Rishi Sunak would be a good replacement. Boris Johnson's support and the, those who think you make a good replacement are primarily those people who voted for Liz Truss. But it's only three quarters of the people who voted for Liz Truss who were of that view. Now, also bear in mind, Rishi Sunak in the end didn't do as badly as the polls anticipated. He got 42% of the vote last time. So he mm. doesn't have to go up that much on what he achieved. And it's also pretty clear that he gained ground during the campaign. Now, there are lots of ifs and maybes here, but I think the first thing just to realize is that, yes, I mean, I mean, the only chance of Boris Johnson winning is if indeed he gets on the ballot to the, uh, with the members. I think you know, that's very much clear. He might well do it. But whether he will do it, I think is to a fair degree uncertain, because I think there are a couple of other things to bear in mind. One is, it's pretty clear now that what Rishi Sunak has managed to do is he's managed to fragment the ardent Brexiteer uh, right wing of the Conservative Party. He has got people like uh, Steve Baker, Kimmy Badenoch, and even Suella Braverman, arch um, anti-migrant, uh, former Home Secretary, uh, to back him. Um, and uh, you know, which are people you would otherwise expect to to to, to uh, promote a candidate of the right, which is where effectively Boris Johnson is coming from now. So that's one consideration. And Kemi Batanak in particular is pretty popular with the membership. We know that from what happened in the summer. And then the second thing we have to to ask ourselves is this: Well, let's say for the purposes of argument, we don't know what the numbers would be, but it, it's not inconceivable that Rishi Sunak might well beat. Boris Johnson in the indicative vote, which we did not have last time, by around two to one. So then the question is, given that view expressed by the parliamentary party, you know, will the membership simply go with their enthusiasm or will some of them hold back and say, well, hang on, if that's really where the MPs are at, I can see that Mr. Johnson's going to have a wee bit of trouble. And of course, what's also true is that the last 24, 36 hours, I've seen everybody being reminded about the fact that Mr. Johnson is still potentially in trouble over Partygate uh, and that he might be thrown out of the House of Commons by a combination of the Privileges Committee and his own uh, and the voters in his own Uxbridge constituency if in the end the Privileges Committee uh, suggests he has misled the House of Commons over Partygate and suspend him for more than eight days. So, you know, all of those are considerations that we weren't necessarily talking about a week ago but maybe before Conservative members uh, by Tuesday. And if they are, I'm not sure that even uh, a vote of the membership will necessarily go in Mr Johnson's favour. Very interesting. Now, you're far more than a pollster, of course. You're a constitutional scholar. Uh, what do you make of, uh, of the argument advanced uh, by Zach Goldsmith, Lord Goldsmith, that, uh, that it would be unavoidable to uh, call a general election if a third prime minister were to, a new prime minister, were to be chosen on a mandate won in 2019 by Boris Johnson. Uh, and that uh, he didn't say so, but I know that he meant 
you really uh, have only one way of avoiding an early general election, and that is to return uh, the, the rightful owner of the seat, Boris Johnson. Uh, then you can say we've already got a mandate and we're merely carrying it out. Uh, what do you make of that argument? Sustainable or not? Well, it's certainly an argument that those on the Boris Johnson side of the camp are articulating. Um, I mean, surprise, surprise, because it's an argument that helps to provide a justification for returning uh, Mr. Johnson uh, to office. I mean, you know, the boring constitutional position is that we don't have a presidential system. We have a parliamentary system and uh, somebody can remain prime minister for so long as they maintain the confidence of the House of Commons. Mr. Johnson was turfed out at the beginning of July. Well, actually, just quite simply because his government collapsed. Mr. Johnson, by the beginning of July of this year, was unable to form an administration. And frankly, there might well be a question mark about Mr. Johnson's ability to form an administration and certainly a stable one, even if he were to win uh, the, the member's uh, ballot. Um, you know, why was Liz Truss brought down? Well, essentially because uh, the chairman of the 1922 committee said, well, uh, if, uh, if you don't resign, um, I'm going to have to hold a ballot and you're going to lose. So again, effectively, she had lost the confidence of the House of Commons. And that constitutionally is, uh, is uh, how our system works. Now, um, you know, we can argue the merits of all of this, but it's also worth bearing in mind that actually a majority of uh, uh, prime ministers in post-war British politics have become prime minister for the first time, not as a result of winning an election, but as a result of a change of horses in the middle of a parliament. So to that extent, Lisa, we frankly shouldn't be that surprised that this happens because it happens more often than it does the, the, the new prime minister's winning election. Now, that said, what you, what you can say is that while changing, in a horse, uh, changing a horse once in midstream is pretty common, Changing a horse twice isn't. And sure, the last time this happened was in the 1935 to 1945 parliament when Winston Churchill was a third, was the third prime minister of that parliament. But of course, that was because the parliament had been extended uh, uh, as a result of the war. Before that, you have to go back to the middle of uh, the 19th century. So you can, at that extent, you can say it's unprecedented. But constitutionally, it's what uh, the British Constitution is what any parliamentary system says. Um, if you can find, so long as you can find a government that can maintain the confidence of the House of Commons within the current House of Commons is currently constituted, then our constitutional system says that's fine. It's, it's only if we reach a situation where the Conservative Party is unable to find a successor who is able to maintain the Commons for the House of Commons. And, you know, that, that is the doubt that we all have. But it's only if that circumstance arises that well, then it will be clear that an election should be held. Um, but unless that does happen, constitutionally, it is possible. So, John, finally, and I'm grateful for your time and wisdom as always, can the Conservatives conceivably split over this? My take, uh, admittedly, I don't meet as many Conservatives, perhaps as I should. But my reading of right-wing social media and punditry and so on is that if Sunak is the new Prime Minister, 
There are many conservatives who simply won't wear it for a whole variety of reasons. And that some kind of realignment, some kind of SDP moment uh, might occur on the right of British politics. In other words, a truly conservative party and a kind of centrist uh, Sunak conservative party. Is that a possibility, do you think? Well, certainly one of the questions we are asking ourselves, which I kind of alluded to in my last answer, is whether or not um, any of the candidates can bring the Conservative Party back together. It's pretty clear that if Mr Johnson wins the contest, uh, there are some MPs who will not be willing to support his administration and may well resign for the Conservative Parliamentary Party. And as a result of that, if, thing, if, if, that, if that happens in large numbers, the Conservatives will lose their majority. And sure, I think there are people who um, are, will find it very difficult to be reconciled to Mr. Sunak. Now, you have to consider, however, what, you know, what might happen. Now, in the case of those who might object to a Johnson uh, uh, premiership, they do perhaps potentially might have a home to go to, i.e. some of them might make the same journey as some uh, did uh, when Boris Johnson threw out the Remainers in 2019, which is to try to move in the direction of the Liberal Democrats, um, which may or may not give Sir Ed Davies' party a bit of a boost. It didn't do much in the end for them in, after 2019. Um, on, the, on the other hand, if Mr Sunak is the leader, where do those on the right go? Well, Mr Farage is kind of jumping up and down again and saying, maybe I need to go back into politics. And maybe some of them might want to go uh, into the into the Brexit party. But here we get into the fact that, of course, the right of the Conservative Party really consists of two very different groups. There are those like Suella Braverman, who are basically concerned to reduce immigration and who see Brexit as a way of implementing a form of economic nationalism. You know, we make things in Britain wherever possible. They are, there are, but there is the other wing, which is what Liz Trust was trying to articulate, which is global Britain. We deregulate. We become Singapore on Thames. We reduce um, the protection of, of workers. Um, ex uh, we go for a smaller state. Um, that's always been a tension inside the Leave movement. Um, we've just seen one side try to pursue that path and crash and burn. Um, but it's not clear. But it's not clear to me that they now very badly defeated would find um, anything like the Reform Reform UK as a particularly congenial home at the moment. Sir John Curtis, as always, much obliged. Thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. What do the uh, voters on the poll think? Who will be Britain's next Prime Minister? Boris Johnson or Rishi Sunak? I really need to know what you think about that. After this short break, when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Now, who killed the Nord Stream? Well, the fact that no one is even talking about it, no one is prepared to investigate it, actually is the answer. The European governments involved, the Danish and the German governments in particular, have already stated that they will not be answering questions about the outcome of any investigation that they might be carrying out. In fact, even members of parliament in Germany have been refused on national security ground answers to basic questions about what happened to a piece of their own national vital infrastructure. For me, that answers the question, but there are still idiots out there. I wonder how many, but there were in the initial aftermath, millions of idiots out there who were ready to buy the patently obvious canard that Russia had bombed its own pipeline and sent hundreds of millions of dollars worth of their own gas bubbling into the ether, an ether which can be smelt in space, and which, of course, at a stroke, removed any potential Russian leverage over the European economy uh, by virtue of the destruction of the pipeline. Now, the man in front on this question is a young man I haven't met before, but I'm very much looking forward to introducing to you. He's an independent writer, a contributor to Fairness, and his name is Bryce Green. And he's being quoted by people of great importance in the media world these days on the Nord Stream subject. So I'm very glad that he's here with us on the mother of all talk shows this evening. Bryce uh, Green, thank you very much for uh, joining us. Um, we could end our interview in, in one line, though I promise you we won't. Who bombed the Nord Stream pipelines? Uh, so you're right in saying that we actually don't know uh, for certain, uh, but if you look at the evidence on balance, I mean, the all the facts on the ground point to this being uh, an operation done with U.S. complicity. Uh, if you go back years, I mean, even to the conception of the pipeline, uh, the U.S. has been against it uh, vehemently. I mean, Obama opposed it. The Trump administration implemented sanctions on people working on the pipeline. The Biden administration has made it a centerpiece of their entire uh, foreign policy in Europe. And you can even go back and look at Anthony Blinken, our secretary of state, his confirmation hearings. And he was he told people that he would do you know everything he could to stop the pipeline from going. Uh, and fast forward to the beginning of the war. I mean, Biden and Victoria Newland, another uh, State Department official, they both made you know very threatening statements uh, against the pipeline. Uh, Biden was asked he was uh, he was asked by a reporter, "How will you stop the pipeline since this is a German project?" And his response was strange. He said. I promise you, I will get it done or something to that effect. Um, and Newland, she was saying, well, 
one way or another, the Nord Stream pipeline will not move forward. Uh, you know, and that was their position. Uh, and, you know, when the pipeline exploded, everyone seemed to forget that. The Western media simply just put all of those statements into a black box and refused to open it. They put all of that history from going back to the Obama years of opposition to the pipeline. They ignored all of it. And instead, they put forth this idea that Russia bombed their own pipeline. In fact, the Associated Press, you know, a widely, uh, widely viewed as a credible agency, they put out a, a, a piece that was published, you know, everywhere from Breitbart to ABC, uh, chiding people who believed that the U.S. might have had some complicity as irresponsible conspiracy theorists. Uh, is this a serious media environment that we're talking about? I mean, how could you ignore these statements from the Biden administration, uh, the the overt statements by the people who plan U.S. foreign policy that they're against this pipeline uh, and in favor of uh, advocating a uh, another baseless conspiracy theory that Russia blew up his own pipeline? And this was interesting because even members of the media, uh, New York Times, Associated Press, Business Insider and much more. Um, they were like, well, there's no real clear motive for Russia to do this, uh, but they're probably just sending a message to the West, right? You know, they're blowing up billions of dollars of their own equipment just to send a message to the West. I mean, you only believe that stuff if you've been indoctrinated and inundated with the sort of propaganda that we have here in the West, that the U.S. can do no wrong and that Russia is evil and the source of all evil and is willing to do anything. Uh, it's pretty striking. It's pretty striking. Well, it's the American dream, Bryce. Uh, you have to be asleep to believe it. Uh, what you've uh, adumbrated there is very powerful, but as when we had a justice system, it would have been said uh, that it's circumstantial evidence. Uh, what actual evidence have we got or will ever get about the means that were deployed because that would tell us we know who had a motive we know who had uh, a record of prior threats and you've explained that very well but how was this done was it a drone was it a submarine was it a frogman uh, or frog woman uh, who 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 done it and and how uh, so again that's one of those questions that we can only speculate about but uh, it, interestingly enough, in you know mainstream media, Washington Post, Associated Press again, uh, and even all over cable news, they, there's this refrain that only Russia had the means and the motive to do this. Uh, I mean, we just explained how the U.S. clearly had a motive to do this. Um, but the means? Well, uh, let's look at the situation. Uh, the pipeline sat in about 200 feet. Uh, right. The, the that sea over there is pretty shallow relative to the rest of the world. Are we really to believe that the U.S. does not have the ability to send any sort of drone or any sort of submarine to uh, to lay explosives in this? Uh, and by the way, we do know that it wasn't an accident. I mean, seismic data from uh, I believe it was Swedish seismologists. Uh, they pretty much definitively claim that this explosion happened in the water and that it wasn't some sort of uh, underwater uh, or underground uh, earthquake situation. So we know who did it or we know uh, we know that it was deliberate. Um, but again, we can really only speculate. 
people like Jeffrey Sachs have cited the uh, radar data of helicopters, U.S. helicopters in the area uh, around the time of the explosion. Um, you know, U.S. intelligence, they've said, uh, you know, for their part, they've said that they identified Russian warships in the area around that time, um, but they haven't provided any evidence. Um, and incidentally, there was a, uh, a plane that captured uh, some of the uh, some of the explosion um, that went to investigate the area. But suspiciously, several hours of flight data are missing from those planes. Uh, and so we're probably never going to know. And Sweden, for their part, they've been doing their own investigation, but they have refused to do any formal joint investigation, uh, citing their own national security reasons. They say that they might be forced to disclose information that's vital to their national security. Uh, now, I can't I don't know what that means. I don't know what information that could possibly be unearthed uh, that, you know, doesn't contribute to finding the culprits uh, and imperils Swedish national security. Um, but the fact is that there's going to be a tight lid on on this uh, on this attack. And there's already been a tight lid on, on the media. I mean, just a few hours ago, I did a, a Google Trends search for the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And, you know, there was a, you know, a peak after the explosion, but it's gone down uh, like significantly, almost back to where it was before the explosion. And that's because people are refusing to talk about it. Um, and, you know, we can't, like I said, we can only speculate, but on balance, the evidence points to the United States and or one of its allies. You know, there have been theories put forth about this. You know, some people are sourced into uh, like Russian intelligence apparatus. They put forth their own theories. Um, but like I said, the public, the general public, we're being left out. And I, you can only guess why. Who do you mean by uh, their allies? Uh, do you mean us? Uh, well, I could. it could be the UK, um, but there's also speculation about uh, Poland, right? Remember, it was a Polish uh, member of the European Parliament who immediately after the attack, they tweeted, thank you, USA. And they tweeted a bunch of stuff about how, uh, you know, now Russian um, Russian equipment is at the bottom of the ocean and how this is such a great thing. Um, and, and this MP is interesting because he's very well connected. His wife happens to be Anne Applebaum, who I'm sure many of your viewers and listeners are familiar with. Um, Applebaum is Sadly, part of yes. the, on the board of uh, yeah. Applebaum is on the board of the National Endowment for Democracy, one of the key institutions that has been uh, at the forefront of U.S. soft power and regime change operations for decades. I mean, even the Washington Post acknowledges that the NED does what the CIA used to do in private, only now they do it in public. Um, and Applebaum has been, you know, she's a staff writer for the Atlantic. She's been writing all these uh, anti-Russian pieces, and she's very well connected to uh, the U.S. foreign policy establishment. And so the idea that uh, this this Polish guy, and, and by the way, Poland has been adamantly against this pipeline uh, for quite some time as well. Um, but the idea that this uh, high uh, this high-ranking Polish official, uh, who's well connected to the U.S. establishment, felt comfortable enough to publicly thank the U.S. for the attack and publicly, uh, you know, point fingers in that direction, I think that's significant. Again, it's not a smoking gun in any way, uh, and people will be uh, quick to jump on to say that, oh, there is no smoking gun. But, I mean, when you're dealing with 
state secrecy and, you know, wartime secrecy, you're never going to have like full disclosures. You're never going to have smoking guns. Very rarely do you have that unless there's an outside independent investigation, which we've already discussed, isn't really going to happen. Uh, and so when you have this guy uh, publicly thank the U.S., I think that it shows that if there are allies that were involved in it, I think Poland is a good uh, is a good suspect in this case. Oh, um, well, there, wow. there was good reporting done by uh, Kit Clarenberg about the intimate relationship between MI6 and uh, and they're planning to blow up the uh, the cursed bridge in uh, Crimea. Uh, and so they, you've already seen a close link between uh, the UK government and the Ukrainian government and also Western intelligence or uh, United States intelligence agencies and the Ukrainian government. And so there's really no reason to uh, dismiss any uh, any finger pointing at the United States or any of its allies. Well, this Polish guy uh, is a former foreign minister of Poland. He's currently the head of the EU-US parliamentary group in the European Parliament, and his family are so connected to you that you called your military helicopters after them. His name is Sikorsky. Bryce Green, you're our star, and I'm very, very glad you joined us here on the mother of all talk shows, and I hope you'll come back soon as information becomes available. Greetings from Victoria, British Columbia. I've spoken there. Lovely place, actually. What are we going to do with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who keeps saying that our 1982 Constitution, Charter of Rights and Freedoms, does not give us absolute rights. I've never heard of that before. I don't know enough about it, Bruce, but what I will tell you is the French government just announced a new law that will allow the French state to require social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook et al, to remove posts at the government's orders within one hour of that request being made by the government or face fines of 1.5 million euros per tweet, per post. And they say that we live in democracies. They say we don't live in China, we don't live in Russia, we live in a country where the state can order media to remove content on pain of a 1.5 million euro fine. Go figure. RFK Jr.'s film is just released, says Zach. The extent of corruption and rot he highlights is truly staggering. It's an important film and its relevance continues growing. How about a watch party on Patreon? Well, I've got my own Patreon page, uh, patreon.com forward slash George Galloway. I do hope that you will support me on that. All kinds of new products coming online. I'm still waiting on our editor, Ron Mackay, to get me that copy of War of the Worlds so I can copyright free, so I can start uh, my recorded version of it. I do hope he's listening, our editor. Now, an old friend of the show that we haven't heard from for a long time. She was close to legend status. It's Lisa in Borum Wood, and she's back. 
Lisa, welcome back. Hello, George. Hi, it's brilliant to be on, and I'd like to congratulate you on your phenomenal numbers that you're getting and the huge amount of influence you're having. And I think it's just this uh, tantalizing combination of experience and passion. And, well, I think Boris Johnson could take a lesson from you in terms of vocabulary and idiomatic use of language, because I think you're brilliant and you keep it very entertaining. So that's great. But... uh, What I rang up about, or what your guest didn't mention when he was talking to... um about uh, Boris Johnson is we haven't talked about the media. Now, we have an activist media that have an agenda, which is Remain, and I think they'd love to see Starmer in. Now, remember those photos they had of Boris with Partygate and everything happening in lockdown? They sat on those ever so long until they sensed an opportunity to get rid of him. And I think right now they're going to sense blood in the water. They can see the Tories are going to be split. I can totally understand why some people have lost total trust and faith in Boris and I think a lot of people hate Jeremy Hunt so they prefer maybe Rishi Sunak with Kimmy Badenoch and that combination on the other hand there are so many people that are still emotionally invested in Boris and believe he cares about Brexit which I don't believe he does anymore now I think if Boris got back in his priority would be Ukraine because honestly this economy cannot improve at all while we are doing these self-defeating sanctions it'll continue to tank and I think it's going to be in a lot of trouble when it comes to January. So my prediction is that a general election is absolutely inevitable because the Tory party, the infighting, the backstabbing, it's going to intensify. I think Boris will come back with scores to settle with a lot of um, recklessness, actually, quite frankly, because what I'm thinking is MPs get that sort of severance parachute, don't they? So they get sort of four years of the salary. I know that wouldn't include all the benefits and the perks that come with it. My, my feeling is that the Conservatives are out of ideas, out of energy, and they would actually like to pass a poison chalice to Labour right now. Maybe they think if they get out quick now, Labour win the next election, Labour are going to have to face this dreadful um, economic Armageddon that's coming down the tracks, and maybe they believe that in five years of a Labour government, they'll be best placed to come in again. So I'm not sure if they think that far ahead, but I'm wondering if maybe that is what they could possibly thinking. Because I'm also hearing that Russia have gone on to kind of a war footing. They've uh, gone, they've uh, implemented a kind of council, which sounds to me almost like a ministry of war, where the whole economy, the the technology, the industry has all been put on a war footing. So they are ready to produce enough that is needed to uh, really mount an onslaught. But in the rest of Europe, in Germany and the UK, not only does the UK not have industry and you can't fight war without a strong industrial base, Germany doesn't have enough energy. So that means they're already in Europe running out of a lot of um, armaments and things like that because of how much they've sent to Zelensky. So it's going to put them in a very weak um, position. They can't back down now because they have to save face. And what if the Republicans really have a route? Uh, Mitch McConnell, I think it is, has written, may not be him, but he's already said they're not going to support any money, more money to Zelensky. Now, I know that prior to the new sort of Senate and Congress being sworn in in January, the neocons and the Democrats are going to try and get another $50 billion to Zelensky so it can last him another year, but he may be burned through that by April. So the UK are going to be left possibly with Poland, because I don't think France are going to want to come to this party, holding the can when it comes to this whole Ukraine thing. And I think that's going to be an enormous mess. And maybe I doubt any of the Tories are intelligent enough to work that out. But if they do have the insight, they might just want to be out 
you know, when they when this sort of brown stuff hits the fan, maybe they don't want to be around and they want to leave it to Starmer. I'm not sure. So I would, because I think that we will face unprecedented crisis this winter in the UK, I wouldn't rule out an extraordinary circumstances leading to a general election, although I totally accept everything you said, that it's counterintuitive in many ways. So that was my point. Well, Lisa, it was brilliantly made, uh, a tour de force uh, of a call, truncated and bifurcated as it was. Uh, I don't have time really to deal with all of the points that you made because a lot of people are now trying to get through, including one uh, from Brazil, uh, in which I'm uh, having to turn my attention now. Uh, Your point about the wipeout in November, as Garland Nixon, our friend uh, in the US, uh, described of uh, biblical proportions, is going to be critical. Uh, the uh, US political scene is about to undergo dramatic change. Uh, the Democrats, uh, while still holding on to the White House, are about to lose the Senate and the House, and everything changes then. Uh, hearings on uh, Hunter Biden's laptop and Joe Biden's corrupt relationship with Ukraine uh, will immediately be opened. Uh, Biden will be impeached if he doesn't stand down on mental health grounds uh, before then. Uh, All of that is very important, but I never met the MP yet who wanted to leave the House of Commons, including me. If you offered me, going back to the Boris Johnson financial discussion point on an earlier caller, if you offered me 50 million pounds or the position of Prime Minister, it wouldn't take me an instant to choose the Prime Ministership. I uh, make it 500 million, my answer would still be the same. MPs don't get that much severance. You get severance dependent on how many years you've you've served, but it's one month uh, pay for every year that you've served. So if you've served, as I did, almost 30 years, you'll get 30 months money. Uh, But most people have not served anything like that uh, term. But even the financial point notwithstanding, uh, it's exciting at certain points in time. A lot of it's tedious, but it's an exciting place to be. And most people who've got that platform, that podium, that megaphone, that pulpit, want to keep it. And nobody willingly uh, votes for a general election that they know that they themselves are going to lose. I think you're right. In general, parties sometimes lose the will to live as the governing party. That's true. But no individual MP loses the will to live as an MP. They assume that they'll be back, even if their party is no longer. Lisa, thanks. You're now officially a legend, so don't be a stranger. Samuel is in Sao Paulo, in Brazil. Well, we definitely want to hear what's going on in Brazil. Go ahead, Samuel. Thanks for ringing. Sorry we missed you last week. No, don't worry. Uh, thanks for taking a call from the jungle. I must say that the garden doesn't look very flurry from here, actually. 
we should explain, uh, Samuel. We should explain. Let's explain. Joe Burrow, the chief diplomat of the European Union, described Europe as a garden and places like Brazil as a jungle, where uncivilized <laughs> people roam. Go ahead, Sam. Yeah, uh, actually, I'm doing say something I called you a year ago to say, and I think today's even more urgent. Uh, an anti-war movement rooted in the working class, not only to demonstrate or to fight up the wars, but to reach out to each other and bypass the long gone, long abandoned diplomacy, as the Borrell's de declaration is a very good example of that. Because in the end, it's the working class that produces the bombs and produce the soldiers, the give the soldiers they're going to be slaughtered in the name of the imperial imperial demands. And I think it's uh, we've got progressively uh, detached from any possibility of dialogue with any leader. Now they feel very comfortable to leave dummies and puppets instead of just like Zelensky or Joe Biden. And while they articulate everything in the background, I think the only way for us to survive is to reach out each, I think, to each other. I think shows like yours, for example, is very important. But in the end, they can always pull the plug and leave us without any form of communication. I think we should create social live bonds among people in, every, in different countries. In, and start not only... Well, uh, of course, I, I, I agree entirely uh, with that, Samuel. Um, and uh, it's a point well made. Uh, but you'll forgive me if I ask you, who's going to be your next president? <laughs> I, uh, I think, I think Lula is going to be the president. I think everything's arranged. But allow me, allow me just uh, uh, some time to comment on that. In 2018, they irregularly arrested Lula and they favored the Geraldo Alckmin, which was the choice from the part of the capital, the capitalists. For them, unfortunately, they had Bolsonaro out of control and they had to settle with Bolsonaro. Now, without any new actual fact, they released Lula. And I found very strange, because you don't release an important figure as a political prisoner as Lula without any fight. Nobody gives away a, someone of that stature uh, for free. And so it became clear to me why when they presented his vice president, which is Geraldo Alckmin, which was the choice of the capitalist that arrested Lula in the last election. So I think everything arranged, because mostly the bourgeoisie has uh, uh, given up on Bolsonaro, although he's still out of sort of control. And he may, may, have some cards uh, in his sleeves and could even win. But I think Lula is going. But the world Very class, interesting. Samuel, let's talk. Let's talk after the polls. Thank you for that. Zane is in Suffolk. Let's hear from Zane. Go ahead. 
George. Evening to you. Tell me. Um, great to talk to you again. 30 years, been a long time, first time talking to you. Um, George, um, the current situation is I am a carer for a 97-year-old woman, same age as the Queen. Um, we have been shut off from power for 10 weeks now, where I've had to actually live without power. Um, for a month now, we have not been paid our disability. Uh, it's just like we've just been shut off from society. Banks don't work, nothing, nothing works at all, which is uh, the sad state of United Kingdom. And what's the reason for that? No idea, George. No idea at all. No one's getting back to me, nothing like that. We've just been totally isolated. So your electricity was cut off? Yeah, no, uh, we had a power, we had a power cut. Um, the solution is just a simple little trip switch. Uh, the emergency services came out, they could not cover it because uh, it was something they couldn't do. I had to get an electrician to get it in, blah, 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 blah. And uh, it's just uh, brick wall, brick wall, brick wall, but I'll just move around the brick wall. Well, uh, I mean, apart from the obvious that you need to ring uh, your member of parliament urgently in the morning, uh, 0207 219 and ask to be put through to your member of parliament, say that you made this call, uh, to hundreds of thousands of people last night and uh, we'll be uh, waiting anxiously to see what your member of parliament did about it. You need also to contact your local authority and explain a situation where a 97-year-old woman is living without power for 10 weeks. And thirdly, you've got to call the police and the fire brigade and say that uh, a 97-year-old woman is in peril of her life without power as the weather turns nasty. And let me know how it goes in. Podcast going brilliantly, a quarter of a million downloads. Unbelievable. Uh, we're number one in the charts in Indonesia and we're in the top 10 in Saudi Arabia imagine all over the world in 133 countries and territories around the world we are in the charts so please uh if you're into podcasts download uh ours let me get uh, back to the callers hadi is in north wales in carmarthen and who wouldn't want to speak to someone from there go ahead hadi yeah. I'd like to add a certain point to the uh, to the current situation, the contest between uh, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak. Well, first of all, I think that yeah. the basis the uh, the basis of the Conservative Party, if they had a say, they would never support Rishi Sunak, because simply for one reason, because he's not white. I think that everybody knows that, and I'll tell you something, George. As a non-white myself, I hope that he doesn't become the prime minister, because if he is to be the prime minister, I think this will strengthen the far right. It will push the it will push the basis of the Conservative Party towards, I, I think, parties like the Brexit and UKIP party, and other parties. Uh, on the other hand, I think that uh, in general, Britain needs in the coming years much more growth much more growth rates and I think that all left all left wing politicians just keep on 
with all respect, uh, keep on ignoring this fact, because Britain has been always surpassed in the last decade by several countries. I think that left politicians need to concentrate much more on on growth. Yeah, thank you very much. Well, uh, I, I, you couldn't get more pro-growth than me, so much so that I'm uh, routinely denounced by uh, all kinds of quacks and greeners uh, as being, you know, uh, advocating coal mines and smoking chimney stacks and all the things I secretly love. Some people have guilty pleasures. I have guilty dreams about a Britain of belching smoked stacks and factories with tens of thousands of people in them making things, sparks flying, hammers beating, uh, things appearing from nothing apparently, ships of steel, motor cars, motor bikes, uh, railway workshops. Uh, these are the kind of guilty dreams I have. So you don't need to uh, lecture me, Hadi, about growth. Uh, if left-wing means you're anti-growth, then I ain't left-wing. I no longer describe myself as left-wing. In any case, I'm a socialist. That's all you need to uh, describe me as. Um, so uh, it's uh, a sad comment that you make at the beginning. I have to tell you, uh, with all deference to the fact that I'm white and you're not, I don't think it's true. I first of all don't think that the Brexit party uh, or even UKIP are far right. There are far right people in Britain, of course, but fewer than there are in any, any other European country. Not a single far right public official is in elected office in any part of the United Kingdom, from Land's End to John O'Groats. No other country in Europe could say that. And I don't believe that uh, for the public in Britain, uh, Rishi Sunak would be unacceptable because of his colour. I, I genuinely don't. Members of the Conservative Party uh, is a different matter. There's only 200,000 of them. Uh, they either are gin and jag, golf club bores, or aspire to be. And such people uh, have prejudice, uh, racial prejudice, and many other prejudices. I'm not sure how many Roman Catholics and Jews are in the golf clubs of some of them. Do you get my drift, Hadi? Uh, Ian is in Hounslow. Let's hear from him. Go ahead, Ian. Keir Starmer is hosting a phone-in tomorrow on uh, LBC at 9 o'clock. And if you were to phone him as George from Dundee, what question would you ask him? <laughs> I honestly wouldn't. Uh, ennui would preclude it. I, uh, I, I find him... You know, I'm the one who first described him as so wooden the birds are nesting in him, and I haven't had a reason to change my opinion on that. I'm entirely uninterested in anything he has to say. I despise him even more than I despise the Conservative Party. Uh, if he were to become Prime Minister, as he well might now, 
he will do nothing good for the working people of this country and he will further discredit an already hollowed out and discredited Labour political brand. So my political brand uh, will prosper if Keir Starmer is elected Britain's Prime Minister, but I still don't want him to be because it would be bad for Britain, bad for the British people. Uh, thanks, Ian, for that. Andrew, uh, in the Colombian jungle, is now on the line. Andrew, this is catching on. We had the Brazilian jungle, now we're in Colombia. Go ahead. Yeah, I know, I know. I, I'm actually from the UK, uh, but I came to the Global South like 30 years ago. And I do live literally in the jungle. Wonderful, mate. Wonderful. Um, if wow. you don't mind, I'd like to... So not Joseph Borrell's metaphorical jungle. You actually literally are in the no, jungle. It's true, yeah. I'm, I'm between the, wow. um, the Caribbean Sea and the, the Darien Gap, so literally in the jungle. Um, I'm really nervous about talking, but I'll try and um, work this out. So I think the world is a complex web of interconnections, and I'm probably preaching to the, the convert. Um, but I think there are a lot of like addicts uh, in the world, those that love money uh, become capitalists, those that love power become politicians and, and get bought off by the capitalists. And a lot of people are addicted to comfort um, and they get bought off by the politicians with like cheap, um, basically shoddy goods and shoddy promises. And I think that uh, there's a, it's either a, a massive miscalculation on the part of the political class about Ukraine. But what really worries me is that um, this talk about defeat for Ukraine is a defeat for NATO, as long as it takes. Um, someone else said the Russian army will be an annihilated. And, or maybe it's on purpose. And I'd like to like draw everyone's attention back to Nord Stream, where Blinken said it was a tremendous opportunity. I think, I mean, it's pretty obvious from, I think, like I say, I think most people know already the, the USA uh, used to be a colony of the UK. But it seems like that the Europe is going to be a, set to be a colony of the USA. Except that that means that Europe, um, the Europeans rather, won't have their comfort and prosperity. So I see like three different angles on this. One is direct anger at politicians. But that's maybe what they want because they're already banning um, protests. And as you said before, um, JFK... Uh, and is, is that quote that you um, you made. But also it could be direct anger at, at Russia or the country next door. Uh, and I, that's the, basically the reason I'm talking, because uh, I think we're on the brink of a possible nuclear conflict because there's talk of tactical nuclear weapons in in Ukraine being used. And I think that's, that's possibly going to be a false flag. But I, I'd like to, to draw everyone's attention to like basically learning from the global south. And because uh, basically Europe has been living off the, the global south uh, well, since colonial times, which we haven't really, we haven't really exited. And uh, I think it's the time for the free lunch is over. That we need to kind of learn and, and not abuse and steal from the global south. I mean, I, I am in the global south, but um, yeah, I, I think that the, the, we need to kind of look for a peaceful transition 
to, as they say, a multipolar world. And that that's obviously going to mean that um, people's living standards in Europe decline. Well, I'll tell you what, Andrew, for someone that was nervous about talking, that was one hell of a telephone call and a pretty good line in the Colombian jungle, uh, I'd have to concede. And I agreed with every single word that you said. And so given the hour, shan't repeat it, but uh, express the hope that you stay in regular touch with us uh, because the wisdom displayed in your call was was really of a very high standard and shows the uh, reach of this open university of the airways of which I speak. Uh, you're absolutely correct uh, to be extremely anxious about the danger of world war. Uh, there is a massive, massive underestimation of the sheer peril of the international situation that we are now in. I'll discuss more of that on Wednesday evening uh, in the midweek modes, which remember starts at 9 p.m. UK time. Uh, last call, it'll have to be a quick one, Drew in Winchester. We haven't been to Winchester for some time. Drew, welcome, go ahead. Uh, hello, George, uh, greetings from the LPYS. Um, I've been watching you for a oh. good couple of years now. I've, I've just come back from China, and it's interesting. We've been watching the British people, that is, have been in China watching Boris Johnson handle COVID and the economy uh, with horror. We've been watching our parents and friends die, and all of a sudden I come back to England and I find out he's a hero and that he's made really good decisions and helped everybody out. And then all of a sudden they suddenly they discover that he was a liar after all. And we begin this grotesque game of musical chairs trying to pick a new leader uh, for the uh, a new captain of the uh, of the Titanic, as it were. And despite all <laughs> the debates that's going on, it doesn't really matter who's going to be the captain. We've, we've hit the iceberg. We're going down. And whoever's at the helm when we do go down, doesn't really matter whether it's Johnson or whether it's Sunak or whether it's Mordoan. The, the main thing is that they are not going to get back in power, hopefully for a generation. Um, but the main problem is that Starmer probably will. And he's going to be looking after the first-class passengers. He's not going to be looking after the people who need looking after the people who are drowning. He's going to be looking after the first-class passengers. He's going to be giving billions to the Ukraine army, etc. How do we begin to mobilize against that? Well, you were on a rolling wave there, uh, Drew. Uh, some watery metaphors, but buoyant at the end uh, because we must not go quietly into that good night. Uh, otherwise, uh, it would be a recipe for defeatism and for personal as well as national collapse. And I'm not ready for that. And I don't believe the British people are ready for it either. As it happens, I don't believe the human condition is ready for that. 
I believe that we will and must uh, fight for our national salvation. I believe that to do otherwise, to surrender, we, one might as well walk into the water that you were talking about. And I don't believe that we'll do that. It does matter who's in control, who's at the helm. It does matter. Uh, if, uh, if you've just come back from China, you have seen the value of who is in control. Uh, China has lifted more people out of poverty than any system, any regime ever in the entire history of humanity. 800 million Chinese have been lifted out of poverty over the last 40 years. And here's something that not many people know. The average income in China the income of the average person in China is now higher than the average income of the average person in the European Union. You know, when I was a kid, your mother would say, eat up that, eat up your dinner. There's people starving in China. Perhaps they'll be saying that in China about us. It's been marvelous for me. I hope it is for you and if it is. Well, there's some breaking news on the screen from a Mr. Harry Cole of the Sun newspaper, which says, Boris out. I'm not so sure. I certainly won't take as gospel that which appears from Mr. Harry Cole in the sun. But if it is true, then welcome, Mr. Rishi Sunak, Prime Minister. You just made much of my last two hours of my life entirely wasted. Thanks uh, very much for being here. Notwithstanding this rather late shock, which my wife forced me to read out, I'll see you on Wednesday at 9 p.m. for the mother of all dogs. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.